At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. It's been 3,219 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 300 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We'd like to remind our listeners that our team will be taking a well-deserved break for a few days in December and January, so we will not be publishing new episodes on December 25th or 26th, nor on December 31st or January 1st, and we'll be focusing on special reports in the first week of January. Our full situation reports and regular update podcasts will start up for 2023 on January 11th. Of course, if there are any major developments during that time, we will jump in with coverage and analysis. With that out of the way, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, while weather-dependent, we assess the possibility of Russia, Ukraine, or both launching significant offensive operations on New Year's Day or January 7, 2023, which is Orthodox Christmas. Second, we assess that the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, Army General Sergei Surovikin, will be under increasing pressure to create progress in January 2023, with it highly unlikely that a political victory will be gained through the battlefield before New Year's. Third, we maintain that Russia is still conducting stealth mobilization, and it is almost certain that the second wave of partial mobilization will begin in January or February 2023, despite Kremlin denials. Fourth, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished further and is now a remote possibility during the winter months. Fifth, we maintain that terror attacks will continue on civilians and civilian infrastructure and assess an elevated risk of attacks through January 7, 2023. Sixth, we maintain that Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Seventh, we maintain that a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants, 
as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction, is possible. Eighth, our assessment that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing more unrest outside the Kremlin was accurate, with numerous Russian mill bloggers openly criticizing the Kremlin, tactics, strategy, intentional disinformation spread by Russian state media, and the treatment of Mobiks. Ninth, we maintain that Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu is reaching a point where his continued leadership of the Russian Federation Armed Forces is at risk, and that it will be politically difficult to blame Army General Sodovyakin, Commander-in-Chief of the Russian Aerospace Forces, for failing to defend Russian airbases. Tenth, we maintain that neither belligerent will enter an operational pause over the winter. Eleventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Twelfth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin to be combat effective due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. And finally, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. On the Svatova axis, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported another Russian attempt to advance on Stelmechivka, which was once again unsuccessful. On the Kremina axis, Russian forces repeated their attempts to launch a limited counteroffensive toward Makhivka, while Ukrainian forces were shelled and fought with Russian troops in Ploshanka. Mercenaries with Wargonzo wrote, quote, In the Luhansk direction, the armed forces of the Russian Federation attacked at Chervonopopivka, end quote, which indicates that Ukraine has more control of the town than previously assessed. There weren't any claims that Ukrainian forces have physical control of the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, so we adjusted the map to move the line just west of the highway. The Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported continued fighting near Dibrova and within the Serebriansky forest area. Based on a statement by Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, and other intelligence, we've moved the line of conflict further in the Serebriansky region. On the Lysychansk axis, fighting continued east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with Russian forces failing to advance. Governor Haidai stated the situation in the town had stabilized. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center of Control and Coordination, or JCCC, reported two HIMARS strikes in the occupied territory in Novoselivka and Alchevsk, and the heavy shelling of Russian positions in Svatova. In northeast Donetsk, there are significant information gaps about the situation, with the analyst community growing increasingly frustrated and growing declarations of I know best. We continue to follow our North Star, the truth matters, and in the absence of truth, the real answer likely lies between the various reports. Our solution of crowdsourcing reports when there is a lack of video and picture evidence has served our community well. The situation is stable and favors Ukraine. On the Lysychansk axis of northeast Donetsk, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported another failed attempt by Russian troops, likely with the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR, to advance into the eastern part of Verkhnokomyanskia. 
On the Solidar axis, our assessment appears to be accurate that the private military company or PMC Wagner Group is spread too thin, and that penal units supported by LNR and Donetsk People's Republic or DNR separatists are combat ineffective. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Yakovlivka was shelled throughout the day, and Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, also reported artillery strikes. So far, Russian forces have not been able to take advantage of their positions across the T-1302 highway. To that point, there wasn't any reported fighting in Solidar, with Russian forces relying on artillery and Russian sources claiming Ukraine was building up reinforcements for a counterattack. Russian sources reported that PMC Wagner could not regain the lost territory in the center of Bakhmutska and remain in the southeast region of the settlement. On the Bakhmut axis, Ukrainian forces successfully defended Pirkhorodne, holding PMC Wagner at the M3T-1302 highway intersection. There continue to be, quote, intense skirmishes on the eastern edge of Bakhmut. Territorial control claims swing over a five-kilometer-wide area from west of Fedora Maximenka Street to the east of the M3 or E40 highway. One Ukrainian source claims PMC Wagner holds control of the Sinyat Ceramics factory and never lost control of it between December 15th and 17th. Russian sources we have identified as more reliable acknowledge that PMC Wagner was pushed east of Fedora Maximenka Street. After our terrain analysis, we find it impossible to believe in the current environment that anyone is holding defensive positions in the middle of fields east of the city. We didn't move the line of conflict, but we'll acknowledge that due to the battle's nature, the line is likely swinging 200 to 500 meters more than once a day. Yesterday, we discussed a video of Ukrainian forces boarding a Kozak II lightly armored infantry vehicle with the sound of small arms gunfire in the city's eastern part. There were questions about the color of the armbands worn by the soldiers and if they were Russian. The video had been post-processed using a LUT, it's an L-U-T or lookup table, which muted brighter colors while enhancing grayscale. This editing for style changed yellows to white and gray. Considering the closing line of his poem from the album The Night, Jim Morrison would have approved, quote, Red is gray and yellow white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion, end quote. A video showed the debris from the railway bridge that crossed over the M3 highway in North Bakhmut. A critical G-lock has been removed. The video shows a large crater under where the bridge was, indicating Russian forces destroyed it versus Ukrainian combat engineers. Russian sources acknowledged being pushed out of Opitne and a failed attempt to regain lost territory. A geolocated video showed Ukrainian forces operating in the southern part of the Bakhmut suburb, confirming their advance. South of Bakhmut, Russian sources reported continued fighting east of Klishivka, with PMC Wagner unable to advance. Ukrainian positions in Andreevka were shelled, with increasing concern from Russian mill bloggers that Ukrainian forces are preparing a larger counteroffensive on Odradivka. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces successfully defended Kurdyumivka. In southwest Donetsk, on the Khorlivka axis, Wargonzo shared that the failed Russian advance on Oleksandropil on December 18th 
came from the Novoselivka direction and attempted to reach the H-20 highway to isolate the Ukrainian garrison that controls Novobakhmutivka. We have maintained that Novobakhmutivka has been contested for weeks, and the GSAFU has reported several failed Russian attempts to push into the town. Based on this information, we've moved the line of conflict south and east of Novobakhmutivka, south of New York, and pulled the line of conflict to the east side of the H-20 highway near Novoselivka and Kamyanka. We do still consider Novobakhmutivka as contested. Supporting Ukrainian positions are improving in the area. DNR officials closed the E-50 highway between Khorlivka and Makievka to civilian traffic as it's under Ukrainian fire control. South of Avdiivka, Russian sources reported that fighting continued near Opitne, west of the Donetsk International Airport, and Vodyana. A Ukrainian Mi-8 helicopter was shot down near Pervomaiske on December 18th, with the hard landing caught on video. The Mi-24 flying information returned to the crash site and landed, although the disposition of the crew of the downed chopper is unknown. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued their attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske, gaining 10 to 30 meters of ground. On the Marinka axis, Ukrainian troops successfully defended Krasnohorivka, the one west of Staromikhailivka. Denis Pushalin, the self-declared leader of the DNR, reported that Marinka had been captured, a claim that was unsupported by the Russian MOD and multiple Russian mill bloggers. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces continue to defend their positions, and reliable Russian sources report ongoing fighting in the center of town. A video released today, which is likely older, was recorded on Prokofieva Street east of the mine waste heap, with small arms fire in the area. The sound of gunfire this far east from the center of Marinka does not support a Russian westward push. DNR separatists attempted to regain lost defensive positions east of Pobida without success. On the Vuladar axis, the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued their glorious military traditions east of Novomikhailivka with yet another failed advance. The Russian MOD reported new Ukrainian attacks on Volodymyrivka and Ukrainian DRG units operating near Mikilske with no evidence. There continue to be no reports from any other source about fighting in this area, and strong evidence that more experienced Russian military units were withdrawn from the area. Russian sources reported fighting near Novosilka on the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram Channel claimed their forces destroyed two tanks and nine, quote, units of armored and automotive vehicles. If you are wondering, what about that Mi-8 helicopter? We are also wondering that. Ukrainian forces carried out 235 fire missions on the occupied territories. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro. Russian forces conducted 42 fire missions on free Ukraine, killing two and wounding three. 
The city of Kherson experienced widespread shelling, causing significant damage to civilian infrastructure and targeting residential neighborhoods. Bereslav was also heavily shelled. There continue to be rumors of Russian troops withdrawing from the east bank of the Dnipro River to move out of the range of Ukrainian artillery. We find this unlikely because this would mean Russian forces could not shell Ukrainian positions west of the Dnipro, and to pull back out of HIMARS range would require a withdrawal almost to the Crimean border. In Chonkhar, on the Kherson-Crimea administrative border, a Russian ammunition vehicle exploded for an unknown reason and was burning out of control. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and the six reactors remain in a cold shutdown state. In Zaporizhia, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian strikes on Russian troop concentrations in Berdyansk, Tokmak, and Polokhi injured over 150 personnel, an ammunition depot, and up to 10 pieces of military hardware. In occupied Melitopol, there were reports of two large explosions at one of the Russian bases, but no additional information at the time of recording. Otherwise, there were only sporadic artillery exchanges between Russian and Ukrainian forces from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola, to Orekhiv, to Mali Shirbaki. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the Ukrainian Navy reported eight ships of the Russian Black Sea fleet on patrol, with no missile carriers among them. The Kerch Ferry had to suspend operations due to bad weather, and the car-only section of the Kerch Strait Bridge will be closed on December 21st to permit continued repair work. Russian state media claimed on December 17th that the Russian Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, inspected the so-called front lines in the southern military district in Ukraine and released a video of him observing and released a video of him observing from a helicopter window. The closest Shoigu came to the front lines was 80 kilometers, flying near Armyansk in Crimea. While some video clips showed recently built defenses, others were clips of defensive lines built in 2014 and have long been abandoned. Russian forces shelled Ochakiv and Kutsurub in Mykolaiv, causing unknown amounts of damage at the time of recording. There were no casualties from the strike. In north and northeast Ukraine, in Cherniv, the settlements of Timonovici, Karpovici, and Kostobobriv were shelled from across the international border. Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Romadas of Velika Pisarivka, Krasnopilia, Miropil, Yunakivka, and Khotin were also attacked by Russian forces from across the international border. Three homes were damaged in Miropil, and in Shalikhin, territorial guards got into a minor skirmish, exchanging small arms fire and rocket-propelled grenades. On the Russian front in the Bilgorod Federal District, the town of Shebikino was shelled, knocking out power and water after an electrical substation was damaged and a warehouse caught fire. One person was injured in the attack. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Uncool Lando Calrissian and self-declared leader of Belarus Alexander Lukashenko reportedly rebuffed Russian President Vladimir Putin's pressure to join the war against Ukraine using his military forces. Lukashenko needs those forces to stay in power, 
even though his people like him, whether they like it or not. Putin extended his stay by a day, and the two dictators are having a sleepover at Lukashenko's state residence. The two leaders have agreed to continue joint training exercises and other nebulous economic and military partnerships. Speaking of nebulous, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Governor Khaidai of the Luhansk Oblast reported that Russian forces on the Svatova Kremina and Lusychansk axis are force-advancing Mobix and penal units into minefields in continuous assaults, and then moving through the, quote, cleared area with a second wave of troops. All is going to plan. Really, really gross plan. In economic news, the ruble continued its slide, with the exchange rate falling to 70 for one U.S. dollar, the lowest level since May. Demand for rubles is in decline after the oil price cap was implemented on December 5th, and orders for Russian crude plummeted. To help prop up the currency, the Kremlin requires foreign payments to be made in rubles, artificially creating demand. If you are an economics expert and want to come onto the podcast to drop your knowledge on us, I would not say no. Oil prices were mixed, with WTI crude climbing to $76 a barrel and Brent holding at $80. Russian Ural's crude also climbed, reaching $57 a barrel. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market inched toward $2.19 a gallon, or $0.58 a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures continued their downward trend after weeks of volatility. Futures were trading at €104 per megawatt hour for January 2023 delivery, and 106 for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures were down slightly, trading at $7.47 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.